Hello everyone, you are listening to the Open to Happiness podcast. I am your host Nicoletta and I will be joined by Brooke Seam today, an award-winning chef and mental health writer from Reno, Nevada, USA. We will be talking about the relationship between antidepressants and happiness today and I'm so looking forward to chat about this topic. Hello Brooke and welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks so much for having me. You're very welcome. So, Brooke, let's start by finding out a little bit about you and your journey in life. Sure. Oh, I don't even know where where to start with that. I was uh, born and raised in Reno, Nevada. I was a very serious ballet dancer uh, as a young, young, young person. I uh, spent a lot of time in New York City training, and that was kind of what I did in in my life. And uh, that everything kind of started to kind of come to a halt with that. Um, it really started when I was about 15. My father passed away suddenly. And that was the incident that led me to be put on a cocktail of antidepressants. It was the year 2001. You know, I think at that point, it was we were really starting to just medicate children and teenagers. It was kind of when that was all rising up. So I was put on a variety of these drugs. And then by the time I was 18, I'd broken both of my feet. And so the ballet life was sort of gone uh, in a pretty quick instant. And I went to college in Vermont at the Middlebury College and got a liberal arts degree, which I've never used. And then after, you know, having a long love affair with New York, I moved there in my very early 20s and uh, went to culinary school and started working in restaurants and and spent eight years in New York. Um, I ultimately opened up my own bakery there in 2011. It was called Prohibition Bakery. And I left in 2016 uh, when I realized that I had spent half my life and my entire adult life on these cocktails of drugs. And I was still massively depressed and having suicidal thoughts. And I just had a literal light bulb moment, I guess you'd say, where I realized that if I kept taking these drugs, I will have spent more of my life on them than off of them. I was put on them around the age of 15 and I was around my 30th birthday. And so for me, it was a very easy math equation to realize that I was uh, entering into spending more of this time on these drugs than, um, than, I, than I had been off of them. And that, that really scared me because I was still so unhappy and so depressed and I couldn't imagine living the rest of my life, which you know could be projected to be 80, 83 years old or 85, whatever it is. I couldn't imagine living another 50 years feeling the way I was feeling. And so I felt like I had a really big choice where either effectively I could take my own life and be done, or I could try and get off these drugs and discover what my baseline was for the purpose of, at the time, um, seeing what other drug I needed to be on. I figured that I was one of those people who needed these, these chemical drugs in order to, you know, quote unquote, be happy. But I knew that what I was taking wasn't working. And so I started to think about getting off of them. But quite frankly, I was very scared to do that. Uh, and then an opportunity to travel around the world for a year dropped into my lap. So suddenly I had this very real opportunity to do something that very few people get to do. And I realized I couldn't take a suitcase full of drugs around the world. And I didn't trust that if I was, you know, in Cambodia, I would be able to get my drugs reliably. And I didn't want to suddenly be without them either. So I made the choice um, with a psychiatrist and started to get off of them with the intention of being off of them before I got on the one-way ticket to Malaysia that I had booked. And I had about six months to do that. But as it turned out, I entered into pretty explosive antidepressant withdrawal and 
that took much longer than six months. It was a, I was still withdrawing while I was traveling around the world. And ever since that experience, uh, I just kind of started to learn more about what it is to cultivate happiness and the skill of happiness and how to practice that in a way that can help yourself. And uh, now I am five years. I mean, it's, it's been long enough now that I'm starting to get fuzzy on the math. So yes, it's 2021. Uh, I'm five years without any of those medications and completely blissfully happy in a way that I never thought possible at the time. And that's been my past five years have been about unraveling that journey and writing about it and figuring out how do I know myself and how do I live in this world when the most formative years of my life were spent under the influence of these drugs where I really wasn't doing all the learning that people do in their 20s and their late teens. I wasn't doing that because of these drugs. So I did it later. And so now I feel like I'm finally coming out into the world and able to say, oh, this is who I am. This is what I like. This is what I do. And so I am a chef and recipe developer and food writer. And then I also do writing on mental health and antidepressants and antidepressant withdrawal. That's fantastic. I can't wait to deconstruct this beautiful story with you. I'm really sorry to hear that you've lost your dad when you were an adolescent. And very sorry to hear that you had injuries on both legs and you couldn't pursue your life dream to to be a ballet dancer. I don't know if this is going to help in any way, but I feel that things happen for a reason in our lives Mm -hmm. and one is unfolding the other. So it happened that way for a reason. Maybe you found it, maybe you're still searching for it. You, You will discover it in time. But coming back to what you mentioned... At 15, you're placed on antidepressants. It's very early. That's the medical model. This is the world we live in. What was it like for you, really, to start taking drugs so early? Psychotropic medication, which we know has terrible impact on on the nervous system and not only. Mm -hmm. If I have to be totally honest about it, and the reality was there were two things kind of going on at once. One is I was so encompassed in grief, but I didn't know that because I think that Grief is such a mystery and it's in it and it brings together so many different emotions and really throws off your inner compass. And I was so young too, so everyone was looking at me. I wasn't really grieving outwardly. I wasn't crying all the time. I mean, I think my grades slipped a little bit, but I was kind of chugging along in a fairly standard way, but just there were other signs like I was you know, dropping weight. I was developed as a dancer. So I was kind of developing eating disordered habits at the same time that, you know, I had lost my father. And my mom says that I wasn't talking, you know, they tried to take me to a child psychologist first, and she broke her trust with me immediately. Um, And so there was no reason for me to do that. I was also an only child, uh, very petulant and independent. And I have to be honest, I also liked the attention. There was something about it. And I remember that as a 15-year-old, as twisted as this is, feeling special that something bad had happened to me because suddenly it kind of validated anything else that was going on in my life. I was able to, you know, if I got a bad grade, I could consciously or unconsciously blame it on the loss, right? Mm -hmm. You know, I'm a performer. I love being in the spotlight. And so this, in a weird way, fed that, you know, part of me. And so when I, you know, was ultimately put on these drugs, there was kind of on the one hand, I didn't really care because I was grieving. I was 15 year old teenager who, you know, never care about anything. 
And also there was no red flag in me that said you shouldn't do this. There was also no red flag in any of the adults around me. You know, nobody came into this thinking or 15 years down the line, I would be having a really, really big problem. From my mother's perspective, it was she was she was at a point where she figured, you know, either I put her on these drugs or I might lose her because she was watching me kind of slowly slide downhill. I just don't think I registered that at the time because you kind of don't know the chaos you're in when you're in it. So there was that. And then I got put on them. And again, there was this kind of, you know, self-satisfactory, oh, well, there must really be something wrong with me if I need medication for it. And therefore, nothing's really my fault. And I just was not in a position to take any self-responsibility. And I also wasn't educated on the grieving process. I didn't know that grief is not something that you sit with for a few months or a few weeks, and then it starts to go away. I didn't know that it's something that, you know, can kind of come back and be much worse a year after the tragedy than it is a week after the tragedy. None of that was explained to me. I didn't understand it. I don't think I really started to realize that until much, much, much later in my life, after I had lost other people and started to notice patterns. So all of that at the time, I have to say it was a pretty uneventful thing. I mean, I was put on one drug and we'd see how I did. And I had some bad reactions. You know, maybe I was sleeping all the time or literally nauseous. And we just kind of tinkered until we found a combination that didn't make me obviously ill or worse. And then it's just kind of blank for four or five years. I mean, I don't, I feel like I have also a lot of memory loss around the trauma and the couple of years before and after. And so I don't, I just don't have a lot of recollection of this time. Um, I did ask my mom once whether or not she thought the drugs helped. She just paused and she kind of thought about it. And she just kind of said, honestly, no, but I didn't know what else to do. And you kept performing in the way we expected you to at that point in the sense that, you know, I got a good SAT score. I applied to college. I took some time off of dancing, but I started again. It was just kind of, I was still operating on the outside like someone who was there, but I think I just wasn't fully within me, my body at the, during that time. Mm. Would you say that maybe you've been connected with yourself, with your physical body, perhaps your mind, potentially your spirit up until 15 years of age? In retrospect, I would say that I was connected, but it certainly wasn't something that I was conscious of at the time. And I was certainly not conscious of losing the connection. Okay. I think that one of the biggest challenges with the age that I was put on those drugs is that it was very much in transition. I was not quite a child. I was not quite an adult. It was very much the middle of puberty. So not only was all of puberty on these drugs, so I was developing on them and formulating my world worldview about myself and the world around me and relationships while I was on them. But when I finally got off of them, the only frame of reference I had for feeling connected to myself and being a whole person was when I was a child. And that's just an impossibility to connect to. A 30-year-old doesn't identify with their 12-year-old self. It, you just don't. So for me, there's this kind of lost question mark where I had to, when I hit 30 and started to get off of them, I realized this was not about going back. This was not about figuring out who, like going back to who I was because I really didn't know and the, cir the circumstances were different. So it was about moving forward and saying, okay, who, who am I now? How do I get connected and you know, integrate the mind, body, soul together now, mm -hmm. not trying to find who I used to be. 
Well, that was a smart move, wasn't it? <laughs> Very good. Because in a way, who you've been, your previous versions were still there inside of you. But the point was not to go back and re-identify with the previous version of you, but to get back in touch with yourself and decide who you want to become right now, who you want to yeah. allow to unfold right now mm -hmm. in this very moment. And in terms of happiness now, would you say that you've been happy up until 15, until your father passed? And has that changed throughout the, the following 15 years whilst you, you've been on antidepressants? Well, I could say for sure that I was not happy from 15 to 30. I think happy is such a personal It's a word with no real definition in my opinion. It's so personal to each individual person. And I think there are a million better words to describe what it means to live a good life that people heart to heart understand. We all know what it feels like to feel joy or to be content or have excitement or feel fulfilled. But one person's definition of happiness to another is to, it just somehow doesn't work. It's so nebulous. And so I could say that my definition of happiness is I was not happy from 15 to 30. I would probably argue that I wasn't happy from maybe 13 to 30 because I had those, you know, two years of being a bit of a jerk of a, you know, teenager and hitting the rebellious stage. You know, my version of rebellious was it was really quite milk toast, But uh, still, I was, you know, kind of an annoying, angry teenager in the way that I think most people are. Um, I remember as a child and I remember being told that, My mom would say that I was a happy kid, you know, but I've also been extremely intense my entire life and very, you know, definitely have some anger in me that I, you know, still working on. So I had a temper. I kind of felt like my emotions, you know, were always very saturated. I was deeply feeling whatever I was feeling at the time, but that could be curiosity, joy, sadness, whatever. But I felt it in its, in its fullness. I did not feel my emotions in their fullness, except for maybe the general malaise and despair of depression from 15 to 30. And that was one of the biggest things I had to really get used to as well. When I started to get off these drugs and I, the, the fullness of my emotions returned, that was very, very, very scary because not only did it feel like I was losing my mind, but also just that I, I really couldn't connect to that intensity that I had had when I was a kid as an adult, because as an adult, you're not allowed to be intense. Mm. Toddlers are allowed to have meltdowns in the middle of a public place and scream and people, you know, write it off as that's what kids do. Adults are not allowed to do that, even though adults still feel that intensity. I didn't know how to manage that in the first year, 18 months of getting off of those drugs. So it really, I would say, took me until I think I started to feel kind of the true pangs of happiness, my definition of happiness in 2017. I actually kind of remember the moment where I first started to feel it. And it's just been on an upward trajectory since then. Mm -hmm. We're going to talk a little bit more about that, what happened after you stopped taking medication. Just a quick question to clarify something. You've been obviously on antidepressants for 15 years. It's starting in adolescence. You're growing up, basically. You're, mm -hmm. you're, you're developing throughout mm -hmm. this uh, stage. And yet you managed to finish college. You become an award-winning chef. You won uh, the job, the mm -hmm. television show. And I think you've been named by Zagat as one of the 30 under 30. So there's a lot of achievement throughout mm -hmm. all of these years. You're not numb in a way mm -hmm. <laughs> you're not under anesthetic as yeah. some people would probably be or find themselves mm -hmm. sometimes when uh, 
when they take antidepressants and they feel like they they can't move and there's no momentum mm-hmm. created mm-hmm. in their lives. So you do a lot and you're vibrant mm-hmm. and you still carry on. But then, boom, something happens and you realize mm-hmm. inside yourself that this is not a life. And before we move mm-hmm. into understanding what happened later, because I think the most important part of the conversation would be, what is this antidepressant withdrawal about? Because we don't understand really much about it. Mm-hmm. We don't know really what happens when the body stops taking that chemical. And some people are afraid to even contemplate the thought of leaving their drugs. But then they come with side effects. And I think the most important question is, have they brought anything good into your life? Have they helped you in any way? So that's a tricky thing for me to answer. I was actually just Googling right now. Um, There have been a few studies on antidepressant withdrawal, but they're very new. Uh, When I started getting off the drugs in 2016, this was a wild west of, of, of science. It's really only been since... I think I first started seeing whispers about it in about 2019 that researchers were actually starting to figure out what was happening here because the bottom line is so there are there are many places and corners of the internet where you can find tens of thousands of people who are they've been run over by a steamroller by the effects of trying to get off these drugs and their doctors don't believe them because all the literature has said oh you're going to have maybe mild flu like symptoms for 2 weeks and there's all these people that are saying this is not what's happening. And then what happens is they just getting, keep getting compounded. Oh, it's because you're not depressed. You're bipolar. So they throw them on you know, bipolar medications or schizophrenia. And so you have these people who are just getting piled with diagnosis and other medications when there's been this underground hunch that this might have something to do with getting off these antidepressants that you've been on for so long. In 2016, those corners of the Internet existed, but it was mostly just support groups. Flash forward to 2021, and now we have actual hard research that's starting to come out about this, and we have much better strategies on how to get off these drugs. And and it's not a perfect understanding by any means of what's happening when your body is trying to withdraw, because the bottom line is we don't actually know how antidepressants work. There are a variety of hypotheses, but absolutely no one can say that they really know how they work, despite what, you know, fluffy health websites and antidepressant commercials will tell you. They, they mm-hmm. do not know. So we can circle back to that uh, in a moment. But as far as whether or not they helped me, I just I don't think that's that's first of all, it's not a question I can answer without a big disclaimer. And that is that, you know, I'm not a psychiatrist. This is I'm not a doctor. This is my story. This is how they affected me. I I really can't say with any surety how it affects other people and whether or not it helps them. There are a lot of people who say it helps them. And I think that there are times in my life where I would have said that these were the only things keeping me alive. The more I learn about these drugs, the less I believe that narrative I told myself, because there's also some research that shows that antidepressants stop working over time. And so there's, I think there's a strong chance that, you know, eight years in, I'm still taking the same dose that I was taking when I was 15. There's a strong chance they weren't even doing anything for me. And what I was feeling was the actual depression, right? I wasn't depressed on antidepressants. I was just depressed and taking, taking these drugs. But even if you're doing that, you're still have, your body still has a dependence and expectancy for the chemicals you're giving it. So when you take those away, there can be problems. There's just no way for me to go back and say, would my life be different or better or more fulfilled for all those years had I not been on those drugs? I just don't know. Kind of like you said earlier about how things happen for a reason. I, I, I believe that not only that, I think things happen for us, not to us. It's not something I could have 
taken to heart when I was in that depressed and medicated state. But I think that the bottom line is I was not ready for those 15 years to actually kind of step up to my own plate and do the work needed to do in order to get myself to a place where I could honestly say that I love my life. For whatever reason, I was not ready, whether or not it was the trauma that was never worked through or antidepressants or just being living in the wrong life or just being immature. I, I don't know. But I was not ready until one day I was. And that's why I was able to stick with it and make it through the withdrawal is because I was finally ready and frankly sick of myself. And I was ready to live with someone else. I was ready to live in a different mind. Mm. So I was able to do it. Well, it makes sense. It's mm. such a balanced response and quite a mature perspective, <laughs> I would say, coming from your age. I would say the same. I mean, I've never tried them personally. I don't have this personal experience, but working as a clinician, obviously, I work with many people that have taken antidepressants and I've been surrounded in my social life mm -hmm. by people that obviously tried them now and again, some of them for their entire life. All I can say from my own experience, which is again limited, all of this psychotropic medication, whatever type of medication it is, it only numbs a little bit what's going on inside ourselves. It's like an anesthetic. It's like mm -hmm. a suppression sort of pill that prevents us from getting in touch with what is actually going on inside. It's like a, it's a time of your life that you keep in the darkness somewhere. You feel mm -hmm. like living, but you don't actually feel alive. And, and the suppression and the blockages that are happening through the chemicals released in the body do more than this, do more than block the sadness, the surface, for they example. Do. I think they block everything in us. They suppress everything that is about mm -hmm. to come out. And I think mm -hmm. this is this is one of the most important losses because working with mm -hmm. people or being around people that somehow feel flat, they don't connect with their emotions. They don't have any joy for life. They don't have any passion. And that's not because there's no passion in them or there's no passion flowing through them. That's because they are already numb to it. They are already mm -hmm. blocked in front of it. I think this is the loss. For me, yes. I'm not pro, I'm not against. I'm just saying... Could it be other way, other other ways of looking at this? Mm -hmm. And maybe if you want to try medication, fine. It's up to everyone to decide what they want to do with their lives. But also look beyond that. Look beyond that. Because I've not seen anyone to actually come out of their struggles just with psychotropic medication. Not yet. Mm -hmm. I'm remaining curious to see what happens in the future. Who knows? But when people have permitted themselves to reconnect with who they are, to get in touch with their bodies, to get in touch with their spirits, with their emotions, and to observe their minds. Then it's when you actually see some transformation. Then it's when you see people shifting from where they yeah. were to where they want to be. So I just want to empower people to search for a bit more than that and never settle for anything as being the panacea, something that is definitely going to cure them or heal them. And they will never need anything because you can take as many antidepressants as you wish. Life will still show up and will still mm -hmm. bring challenges. And I don't think there is a pill that would be able to teach you or help you in, from within to actually face life and face all of these circumstances and get yourself out of it. I think through opening, staying open and, and embracing what's coming and connecting and wanting to know and wanting to, to learn and grow and wanting to discover yourself, you stand a better chance to heal yourself 
and to grow into the person you want to be. So they didn't do much to you. You can't say with your hand on the heart that they helped you do something in particular. But anyway, that was your life experience. And then one day you decided this is not actually the life you've chosen for yourself. It's been given to you and you needed it because you were not ready for something else. So that was like a transition for you in a way (laughs) to move from childhood into the real adult world. It wasn't pleasant all the time. It was hard. But then you awaken, you come Mm -hmm. up into the world Mm -hmm. and something happens. What shifted in you that said, that's it, I'm not going to do it. I'm going to change. Well, it was it was very uh, literal. I had been in a habit of counting things for for a long time at that point. So, you know, you had mentioned all the objective success that I had earlier. and, And that's true. But I think um, because I was put on the drugs at such a young age and I still had expectations to go to college and do well academically and I was surrounded by very driven people, even though I was medicated, you know, I wasn't medicated to the point of being in comatose every day because if I, if I was, those medications would have been wrong. You're, you know, you, you people get put on these so they can still do their life, right? And so it was always part of who I was to have ambition and strive for more. But I was where I was kind of numb. There was just no reaction to any of this. Like it, it didn't really matter whether or not I got, you know, a a book deal that did well or ate an ice cream cone. It was kind of like the level of satisfaction was the same for both of those. So there was a sense of accomplishment because I had worked hard for something, but it just kind of fell off me like rainwater. There was nothing. It never meant anything. Mm -hmm. So that's where the numbness came in for me. Um, And so that same thing had been happening with my, my bakery. I was incredibly unhappy in my business and struggled a lot with my business partner and just the general challenges of trying to keep a small business afloat in New York city. And so I was in a five-year-long lease uh, on a brick-and-mortar shop, and I was miserable enough that I started a countdown where I said, okay, how many days left until we're done? And Mm. I put it in my phone, and uh, it was about the time, I think it was about a 1,000 days, so two and a half years, and had a lot of downtime, you know, alone in my bakery. And so I started thinking about, okay, well, anything feels more doable if you put an end date on it. So what happens if I put an end date on my entire life? Like if I am supposed to live a full life, how long is that really? And so I went home one night and I took about a dozen life expectancy tests online. I sourced them from insurance websites, like life insurance websites, actuary tables, uh, you know, some more research, like biology type website. It's even just some basic BuzzFeed quizzes. I took about a dozen of them and averaged the results. And I ended up getting a life expectancy count that was about somewhere around 83 years, 83. I can't, I can't remember the exact date because what stuck with me is that I got a number of my number of uh, years that I was supposed to be alive. Like even one even gave it down to like, you know, the day and the, in, in the, in the month. And so I said, oh, well, what day and month is, you know, 80 some odd years from now. And the day that I landed on was November 6, 2069. And when I did that, I actually, I mean, I I said, okay, so I opened up my Google calendar because you can go forward many hundred years into the future on a Google calendar. And I scheduled the day of my death 
is November 6, 2069. And I put dead in big letters on a third on a Wednesday at about noon. And it was just fascinating to see what happened when I did that. Like, I, I honestly felt the pressure leave me a little bit. It was not, I didn't feel like it was morbid. It was very much just relief that this would be done, like the pain would be done. And that even if I never got better, one day this would be over and not by my own hand. And so I, uh, I took it one more step and I, I put the date in my calendar and so I have a little countdown on my phone that has the remainder of the days I have left until November 6, uh, 2069. So as of today, it's 17,662. And I also had the calendar countdown, counting down for my business. So I would just kind of check these two things whenever I was feeling low or frustrated. And it weirdly made me feel better just because it was kind of like, you know, you can do you can do anything if you set your mind to it. So what happened was, is I was aware of these, you know, little morbid little countdowns I had. And then I started getting curious about the number of days I'd been on these drugs, the amount of drugs I had taken, because I was taking uh, at that point six a day. They were not all psychotropic drugs, but they were all drugs that I'd been put on right around the same time my father died because I was having physical symptoms as well. And I mean, I calculated I had taken over 30,000 drugs in 15 years. I had literally, if I, like, I literally, this is how I spent my time. I literally said, okay, if I lined up every single one of the drugs I had, how long would it take me? And it would took me from my apartment all the way out into, into Brooklyn. And so I was just doing these little things that was really quantifying what I was choosing and what I was doing to myself. And I think it just made it more real because every, you know, when you wake up in the morning and you take a pill, like one day never seems to matter in the grand scheme of your life. But then it's when you start compounding those days together, you know, people have a midlife crisis because they realize they spent the last 20 years doing X, right? It was kind of like that, where it wasn't the one day that bothered me. It was the culmination of all of them. And so that's when I realized by doing the math on how many drugs I would take in my life if I lived till November 6, 2069. I did the math on how many days I've been on them versus off of them and how many days my father had been alive versus how many days he'd been gone. And it just, there was this clarifying moment of 30 years old for me is this apex of if I don't start to make changes. I can honestly say I've spent the majority of my life doing it this one way, and that clearly wasn't working. So it was the numbers that pulled me away and said, okay, well, the only way around this is to try something different and to see what happens if I can get off of them. What a fantastic story. So you're, you are a researcher, uh, a little researcher yourself, collecting data. Yes. That's good. A little, like, little like amateur a, data scientist. No, but that's pen good. Pen and paper as opposed to codes. <laughs> no, don't worry about codes. You shouldn't think of that. <laughs> this is much better because, look, it brings you the awareness of what's mm-hmm. going on in your life. And that's priceless. And you didn't have any godsend coming to you to wake you up. You did it yourself. And that's in itself something you should be proud of. <laughs> really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because you did it yourself isn't it? It's your own making. And your present, it's your making. Mm -hmm. It's it's the history that you're making right now. And that's beautiful. You're creating it yourself. So you're the creator of your life. Okay, so you have this realization, and you make the change, but it's getting very difficult for you, because you have the withdrawal syndrome. And it's taking more than two weeks, as expected. Uh, Yes. (laughs) Years? (laughs) Yes. Uh, Yes, far more than two weeks. 
I, so I saw my psychiatrist and she was very ill-informed and really not at all supportive of what I was trying to do and kind of begrudgingly said, okay, she, she actually told me to stop taking one of them cold turkey, which like, again, in retrospect, I understand why she did it. It's because there isn't any, she didn't know that there were other things to do, other ways to go about it. I didn't know there was other ways to go about it either. By that point, I was on the lowest dose of a particular drug. This was venlafaxine, Effexor um, XR. I was on 32.5 milligrams of that. You can't go to a pharmacist and get a smaller dose of that. So my psychiatrist was kind of like, well, we can't get get you a smaller dose. You're just going to have to stop. I know now that that's not the way to do it and that there are ways around that. But because of the way these drugs leave your system, Going from from a little bit of the drug to zero typically is one of the hardest steps down for people. For example, it would be easier to go from 37.5 to 30 milligrams than it would be from 30 to zero. It's it's the taking them away that can be really tough for people, especially with a drug like venlafaxine, which has a really short half-life. So the symptoms came in hot and heavy for me, and they lasted a really long time, and they were incredibly intense. But what was happening is that even though, I mean, I was extremely moody, I mean, that's that's saying it kindly. I, I, I looked like I literally had, was losing my mind from the outside is, is more what the emotional swings were like. Um, I also had really interesting physical symptoms, like my eyesight got better, my hearing got better, uh, my skin became incredibly sensitive. So when we were talking about the numbing earlier and the inability to experience life in its fullness, I think we very often only considered the emotional side of that. But for me, it was physical as well. I was not taking in the physical input from the world mm-hmm. at 100%. And when the drugs went away and suddenly I was taking it in, it was like someone had turned up the Photoshop sliders in my life. And I was like, I was just completely lost. I mean, I, I couldn't I couldn't handle being around noise. My eyes hurt. Uh, my skin just completely, I, I got, I developed something called nodular vasculitis, which is when all your blood vessels get inflamed. So my skin was um, so sensitive, I couldn't keep clothes on. And you know, people get so agitated, and they need to move around. And so it was really physical as well. And so pushing through that, I mean, there was multiple times where I would call my mom, and I would say, I just can't do this. And I was, I was also afraid to call my psychiatrist, because if I told her what was really going on, I was I was afraid she was going to send me on an involuntary psychiatric hold because I was also having really severe intrusive thoughts that were harmful to myself and other people to the point where I was like, I mean, I thought I was in, I, like I was insane. You know, like if this is who I am without these drugs, well, I need them. And this was a huge mistake. What I didn't know at the time is that it was withdrawal. It was mm. the mind and body trying to figure out how to operate and recalibrate without these drugs. And because I'd been on them for so long, my body just didn't know what to do. So it took many, 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 many months for the intrusive thoughts to start passing. And uh, it took my skin about, God, two, three years actually to really calm down. I still have some signs of that nodular vasculitis whenever I get stressed. Uh, I started having really bad gastrointestinal problems when I got off of them, which as far as I know, there's no research connecting this, but it makes sense to me if 90% of your serotonin is created in your gut mm-hmm. and and these drugs affect serotonin levels. Well, that yes. makes sense to me that, you know, things might go a little haywire. Uh, that is not scientifically sound. No one has done research on it as far as I know. So don't quote me, but logically it kind of makes sense. Um, but what was also happening at the same time is that I would have these little 
moments, you know, sometimes they call them windows and waves. So I would have these little windows into who I might be able to be and who I was, where I felt kind of light. I mean, it might literally last a moment. It might just even even to the point where I'd be walking down the street, maybe I'd notice a flower and there was a sense of curiosity that brought me to the flower. And I looked at the flower and said to myself, well, that's really beautiful. I hadn't done that in 15 years. I didn't have any curiosity in 15 years. So the fact that I suddenly wanted to look at a flower even for a moment, or I suddenly wanted to be creative and paint, which I had never done, uh, or I found myself laughing at something I had seen a hundred times before, but it felt actually funny, not just kind of like a reaction I'm supposed to do, but actually funny to me. Uh, Those little moments really just they made me really mad because I suddenly realized how much I had been missing all those years. But also it gave me the motivation to say, okay, well, you know, I'd started working with a spiritual counselor at this point. And so I was able to not only talk through it, but I was able to say, okay, if I, if, if I'm capable of looking at one flower for one second and have a moment in life where I don't feel the despair of depression or withdrawal, I can have two seconds of looking at that flower. It's just a matter of time. And if I get two seconds, I can get three, and that could lead to a day, a week, a year. Mm-hmm. So it was a combination of believing in my core that I could get more than one second and also being so mad, just livid about the fact that there were these aspects of life that I had not realized for all those years. I was so mad, and I was so mad about how hard it was to get off these drugs that I, I just, there was no way anyone could put me back on them. I mean, I was at a point where I was like, I'd rather be in withdrawal for the rest of my life and know that I'm not under the influence than, <laughs> than go back on them because I, I was so pissed. And that's where my double Scorpio, I think, anger was very helpful. <laughs> <laughs> well, but it was good because it helped you to, to awaken. And the awakening always comes with a little bit of sadness and a little bit of upset because it's that realization, that insight that we've lost something. Mm-hmm. It comes with a different kind of grief. Mm-hmm. Plus, cumulated with the grief that we haven't processed yet, it brings yeah. a bit of a <laughs> blow. But it's all good in, in a way. It's all very good because oh. obviously you, you lived under that medication for so many years, disconnected from yourself and from the world and basically not mm-hmm. feeling anything. That was the, that mm-hmm. was it, not feeling. Yes. And mm-hmm. then your body and your mind, mm-hmm. they start to reconnect with each other and the spirit and the soul, that force of mm-hmm. life that is within you, that beautiful energy that flows through you. And you're starting to sense something. You're starting to feel something and you become not just the, the human being, capturing the world through the five senses that we know, but you added the sixth sense now, the intuition. And you open Mm -hmm. to wisdom and you grow and you develop and you heal. And it's taking you a while, but it's like that kind of journey through purgatory where you you, you need to suffer a little bit to get get a bit better. And you came out, out of the tunnels. You came out to the other end and you managed to feel for the first time the good and the bad together. I think people really don't understand, and it's not their fault, it's not an individual's fault, it's the society and the culture we've created. Where the actual work is in our life, we like to think that it's the thing we go do for a living that pays us money, but it's not the work. The work is clearing out all of the crap that's happened to you and all the things you feel in order to reveal that emotional inner compass that can help you navigate your career or whatnot. 
when we have these layers of depression and anxiety and trauma, it really smothers that inner compass. And I think what people don't understand is that they think that their intuition if about their life is is the depression or the anxiety. That's what they think it is. Or, you know, then the, you put, throw the medication on top of that and everything's numb. You don't know what you're doing. But the work is actually uncovering all those layers in order to find that clarity within yourself so you can then go and create the life you want. It's the other, it's a different order than we're told. We're told that if you kind of change your life, it'll reflect back on your inside. And I don't believe that. I think your inner, inner world reflects your outer world. So we can't bring what, what we want into our life until we clear out all the other crap. And that's what I think people need to focus on first. And then the career comes, then the money comes, then the things come, the relationship, the kids, whatever you want. But that inner work has to happen first. And what frustrates me about you know the the instant gratification pill popping culture we have is that it really doesn't acknowledge that. So there's no healing of the inner world if all you're doing is taking an antidepressant and then trying to move up the corporate ladder. It's just not going to happen. If you're taking an antidepressant and you're really focusing on the deep inner work at the same time, then I think there's a possibility that maybe they can work together and you can get off the drugs and you'll have the healed and then you can go move up the ladder that you want. But because of everything from just the culture we've created to the sheer disaster that is the mental health care industry, at least in the United States, it's very, very difficult for people to actually do this and to have the freedom and time and emotional space to be able to do that hard work on themselves. So I would just encourage people to understand that it's not instant because it's not supposed to be instant. This is why we're alive. So this is something you constantly work on throughout your life because you're constantly changing and you're constantly learning and there's always things happening to you. And it's kind of like owning a house. Something's always going to break down. You have to go in and fix it. You have to maintain it. Um, you can't just put one coat of paint on it and keep putting the same coat of paint on it every day and expecting the pipes to get fixed, right? You have to look at the whole thing. And that is what will start to change your life at the same time and bring you more of what you want. But the inner work I think just has to be the main focus. We still got to go to work and have our jobs as well. But to me, it's pretty much a tie for number one. I can't say one is more important than the other. If they don't work together, then they won't work together. Your inner and your outer life will never come together if you don't work on them together, if that makes sense. It does. It does. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. It does. And you've been brave enough to start your inner work because that's the only way towards happiness, isn't it? Yeah. Towards peace, towards accomplishment in a way that feels good inside, not mm -hmm. it shows right for the other people in the outside world. And I feel the same. I think you're, you're right. And you've discovered this uh, on your own quite early in life when many people are still fighting now, trying to mm -hmm. climb on that ladder that you talk about for mm -hmm. uh, things that other people in the outer world validate. And they haven't done the basics. Mm -hmm. the, the simple work that they need to do with themselves yeah. to get to discover themselves, to know themselves, to heal the past and to grow into the people they want to be. But that conditioning is very strong. You managed to mm -hmm. somehow bypass it because in a way you've never been hooked by, by this programming so badly. You've been an entrepreneur. I think mm -hmm. you published a book whilst on medication, mm -hmm. The Prohibition mm -hmm. Bakery. You had your own business quite young. So you were still searching for that liberation in a way, mm -hmm. 
but you waited for the right time to, to be able to be ready for it, as you mentioned. And I wonder, what is your purpose in life now? I, I mean, honestly, my purpose in life is just to, you know, take care of my own self in a way where I'm just happy to be here every day. Uh, mm. It's, you know, I think that when you do right by yourself, you do right for other by others. Um, so it's this, you know, egocentric utilitarianism, effectively, where I cannot do good in the world and help other people and be kind to the people around me if I am in a darker, more depressed state. It doesn't work. It just doesn't work for me. And so the more I am just able to say, okay, like, let me just keep looking and working on my myself and my life. So if I'm happy to wake up for every morning and I go to bed grateful every day, then I have so much space in my heart to do my purpose. You know, some people might say my purpose is to talk about my story or to cook good food to nourish people. But I don't think that's my purpose at all. That is the byproduct of my mm. purpose, which is just in ensuring that I am living in gratitude every day, which God, I hated that. I hated when people use the word gratitude when I was, when I was depressed. It, it like, it just feels so patronizing when you're depressed. Mm. But when you've figured it out and you understand what that means outside of the, you know, woo-woo lifestyle pretty picture on Instagram saying thing. When you when you get to what it really means rather than how it's marketed, that's a better way to say it, uh, you understand. And the thing is that gratitude doesn't come easily. It's something you feel. It's not something you do. And you can't feel it until you start clearing out all the other crap and you really start to understand it. So yeah, that's, that is my purpose. And, and, and the beautiful thing about that is that I've realized it's not just, it's not sitting in happiness every day because things have still happened to me in difficult times. But what I've noticed is that there is an undercurrent of constant gratitude to the point where I've had moments over the past few years where something pretty terrible has happened. And I, there's a, there's a little voice in my head that says, but God, I'm happy to be here to see this. Like, it's just the knowing that I am experiencing what it is to be human. And the fact that I, I still want to be here and, you know, would I like the pain to go away, whether physical, emotional, sure. But to know that at the end of the day, it is a layer on top of, of the foundation that is gratitude and pride in being alive that's a very different scenario than when that is flipped, when the base is depression. Because when the base is depression, then it just sinks you even further and further when something bad happens. But if you can get to the point where the base is gratitude, the strength with that is huge. And it means you can endure the things that will still continue to happen. It's so amazing how you talk about celebrating life, even mm -hmm. when it's tough, mm -hmm. and appreciating what's going on around you, appreciating what is good which is sometimes overpowered by, by the negatives and by the mm -hmm. nasty stuff that go on. So in a way, am I fair to say that you've tapped into happiness after you've given up your antidepressant medication? Uh, oh, absolutely. I, and I, at least in my experience, I don't think these two things could have happened at the same time. It was a choice between one or the other. I didn't know what I was choosing at the time when I chose to get off of them. Mm. But God, I'm so glad I chose it. <laughs> mm, I'm so happy for you as well. And I wish I could talk to you for another hour, but it's kind of time to stop. 
maybe I can bring you back in the future. Absolutely. And we carry on. <laughs> so as a final message for our listeners, what would be your tips for happiness? Maybe a message directed to all of those that are struggling right now, whether they are on medication or not. What's your tip or set of tips for happiness? I think the one thing that I would just tell everybody, what I like to keep in mind is what you feel you can heal. To me, it's a roadmap. When we are feeling anxiety, sadness, or depression, or anything negative, that is not a symptom. It is a bright flashing light saying, hello, this is the issue over here. Come toward me. Come work on this, right? And so it's a big reason why I'm really not a fan of the movement right now that is kind of just like, oh, I accept my anxiety or my depression and it's, it's part of who I am. I just have to live with it. To me, I just, I reject that in its entirety because it's not. These are things that are coming up as a as a side effect of unwork or unresolved trauma or something that's wrong with your life. So to me, it's like, if something comes up like that for me, I welcome it at this point. I'm like, well, great, like it's here. Let's work through it so we don't have to do it again. <laughs> and so- Instead of looking at it as these things that are just inevitable that you have to learn to cope with, I say, let's let's learn how to cure that. So what you feel you can heal, it's a it's a roadmap. It's telling you exactly what you need to work on. Oh my gosh, that's so beautiful. That's so powerful. You talk like a therapist or like a spiritual uh, teacher. I'm so happy that we had this chat. It's been beautiful and it's gone so quick. The time, I don't know, it's almost been an hour. What's wrong with us? Uh, but I feel that you're so right when you say that we can't just be deserted in front of stuff that are going on in our lives because we don't live. There's no chance we can tap into aliveness and vitality if we just allow things to happen and we identify with them as being part of our lives. They are a, a sort of a symptom of something not having been dealt with and they really knock in the door and ask us to just pay a little bit of attention. And it's not that bad. I feel that it's much easier when you confront your issues, your fears, your troubles, your problems, your traumas, whatever they are. When you give yourself that wonderful gift in life, I think it's, this is the best gift mm -hmm. you can give to yourself mm -hmm. to just get to know yourself, spend a bit of time with your inner world and heal what needs to be healed or at least start healing inside and then grow into the person you want to become. And then aliveness is just surrounding you and you just have to embrace it and enjoy it. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Brooke. I wish we could chat more, but it is time to stop now. Yes. A big thanks to all of you listening and many, many thanks to you, Brooke, for being here today. Yes, thank you so much. I do have a little newsletter called Happiness is a Skill. If anybody is interested in continuing to hear my thoughts on the matter. So that's the only thing I wanted to plug and I don't get paid for it or anything like that. I just do it because uh, it is a skill and that's, that's what I've learned. And so anyone's interested in checking that out, I would love it. <laughs> Thank you so much. So where can they find your newsletter? My newsletter, you can find it on my website, brookseem.com, B-R-O-O-K-E-S-I-E-M, as in Mary, at dot com. Or just if you search happiness as a skill newsletter, or the actual URL is learnhappy.brookseam.com. 
Wonderful. Thank you so much for taking the time, for donating your time (laughs) to inspire others and spread this goodness and well-being in the world. That's it for now. Until next time, we are wishing you all good health and happiness.